0: I still always kind of make sure where, I know where Kyle is after he scared the snot out of me that one time, so it's like, where's the big guy? If you would, turn to Numbers chapter 25. We are continuing on with our journey <clears throat> with Israel as they travel from <clears throat> Mount Sinai to the, prom- the edge of the Promised Land in our story. You'll forgive me a little bit today. My voice isn't uh, quite where I would like it to be, Um, but uh, I believe that we'll be able to get through. But we're in Numbers chapter 25. You'll remember last week, just as a way to catch you up, uh, we were looking at Balaam. He had been hired by the king of the Moabites, by Balak. Uh, Hopefully you can keep those names straight. It was difficult last week, but Balaam was hired to curse Israel. It was a battle royale between God and between Balaam, who desired money, who desired fame and power, and thought that he had the power. And yet he came face to face with the God of Israel and realized very quickly he could do nothing. He could do nothing. As God put not curse, but blessing in his mouth towards the people of Israel. And God won a great victory for Israel that day. It is a high watermark in the book of Numbers of what God does with Balaam towards the people of Israel. And yet, as we read chapter 25, I hope your heart breaks. We see the blessing of God towards Israel We see all that he desires for them. We see him defend them and come to their rescue. We see him put them up on his shoulders. And yet in chapter 25, we see them walk away from it. As we read this chapter, you might be tempted as well to think, Wow, God is harsh here. God is harsh with Israel. Maybe you've thought that a few times as we've read through numbers. God is harsh towards sin. And sometimes that's easy to think. But as I... As I went through my week, I thought about that. I thought about how God responds to sin in this chapter and other chapters. And as I... Worshipped in a funeral yesterday. As I recall, as I got the call from Susan about Mark's dad, as I received another phone call from a friend who had lost a baby, as I thought about what sin has done to our creation and how it continues to destroy, how the enemy continues to lie. I understood God cannot tolerate sin. He cannot deal with it gently. It must be rooted out. It must be destroyed. As we read through this chapter, I pray that you will see the sin of Israel. I pray that you will see the heartbreak of their sin as they walk away from a God who had just accomplished so much on their behalf in the chapters before, in the whole book. I, will see, I pray that you will see how they, how they gave it all up for pleasure. And I pray that we would be filled with the same zeal of God, the same jealousy of God against sin the same anger over the thing that destroys, the thing that corrupts, the thing that kills there's great hope at the end of this story by the way there's great promise at the end of this but it starts off pretty rough hopefully by now you found numbers chapter 25 if you would stand that we may read God's word together we're going to read all of chapter 25 it's not a long chapter though it says while israel lived in shittim the people began to whore with the daughters of moab these invited the people to sacrifice "...sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor." And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a midnight woman to his family in the sight of Moses and the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced them both. The man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel." The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midnight woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of the father's house, belonging to the Semonites And the name of the Midnight woman who was killed was Cosbi, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of the father's house in Midian. And the people and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of pure And in the matter of Kozbe, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you. And Lord, our... Lord, we are... We are in need of much grace. Father, we we acknowledge to you this morning, Lord, that we are a people who are prone to water. And Lord, as we read through this chapter, we are reminded of your response to sin. We are reminded of your jealousy, your holy jealousy. We are reminded of what sin does when we follow and chase after it. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would, as we prayed earlier, that you would plant a seed deep in our hearts of your word, that it would bear fruit, that it would change us. Lord, we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Our passage this morning, our chapter this morning, picks up almost immediately after the story of Balaam. Remember last week, Balaam had been hired by the king of Moab to curse the people of Israel. He had been unable to. And we're told at the end of chapter 24 that he leaves and goes back to his home. But Balaam leaves a plot. He leaves a plan. Now you may say, Brian, we don't see that. It says that he took up his discourse and he went home. Back, to verse thirty it says, Balak did as Balaam had said and offered, or sorry, verse twenty, chapter twenty-four, not twenty-three. And then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. That's that's the end of the story. However, in Numbers thirty-one fifteen, we're told that at some point Balaam left a plan. It says, Behold, Moses is speaking, Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Pure. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Revelation 2.14 says, But I have a few things against you, because some of you hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block before the Israelites, so they would eat food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. So the rest of scripture tells us that, yeah, Balaam went home, but before he did, he left a plan. Now, you can imagine this maybe a little bit. Balaam approaches Balak and says, hey, I know that didn't exactly go the way you had planned. I know we had planned to curse, and it was blessing, but I've got a plan. See, we couldn't get God to curse Israel. We couldn't get God to turn his back on them, but maybe... Just maybe we can get the people of Israel to turn their back on God. So, Balak, here's what I want you to do. These guys have been lonely for a long time. They've ate nothing but manna for a long time. Maybe a quail here or there, but they haven't had a whole lot. There's not been a whole lot of fun times in the last 40 years. So I want, to take, I want you to take all your pretty girls... And I want you to send all your pretty girls into the people of Israel, and I want, I want them to flirt. They're just going to flirt a little bit, create a little casual conversation, kind of maybe seduce them a little bit. And then once they've done that, invite them to a party. Because who doesn't love a party, especially when you've been in the desert for 40 plus years. And so they invite them to a party, and then once they're at the party, just kind of casually offer them some food. Now, we're not going to tell them that it's offered to idols, but they can see the idols all around. They can see the sacrifices happening. They're going to know that it's sacrificed, but we're just going to offer them this food. And man, when you've been eating manna, I've got to imagine like a T-bone looks pretty good. And then, once you've gotten them to eat a little bit, once you've gotten them to flirt a little bit, once they've enjoyed themselves, then we're going to bow to our idols. And I just want you to use peer pressure. Just, hey, guys, we're going to do this now. Why don't you just join us? It's no big deal. It's no big deal. And I guarantee you that they will turn their backs. Balaam leaves this plan. It's not an elaborate plan, really, is it? When you think about it. Send a cute girl over there. Have her invite the guy to a party. Feed the guy and then Pressure the guy into bowing. I mean, there's nothing complicated about that. And yet it works. We see here at the beginning of chapter 25, Israel destroys itself. Yes, they were tempted. Yes, it was a plan of Balaam, but they destroy themselves. They make choices. They know what God has said about these people, the Moabites. They know what he has said about not intermingling with them, and yet they do. They know what he has said about eating meat offered to idols, and then they do it anyway. They know what he has said about not bowing to any other god, and yet they do it anyway. Is that not so often the path that we take? God does not turn his back on us. He is steady towards us. He is showing much grace towards us. He shows much blessing towards us. And yet, who is it that wanders? Who is it that walks away? We see a shiny bobble. We see something that's pretty. We see something that we think will satisfy us for a moment. We chase after it hard, threatening to even tear it to sunder yet lest someone else get it before we do, only to open it and realize it is nothing. It is temporary. And we have turned our backs on the God who created us, on the God who saved us. So Israel destroys itself. It, it could have, it had experienced, they had just experienced great victories, Remember? They had just experienced a great victory over Og, over Sion. They had just seen God protect them from Balaam and his curses. And yet, it is they themselves who destroy themselves. God sees this sin. It says there in verse 3 that his anger was kindled towards them. His anger was kindled towards them. Later, it's going to use the word jealousy. God's jealousy is not like our jealousy, by the way. We get jealous over all kinds of manners of things. Often things that don't even really matter. Well, that person likes that person better than they like me. Whoop-de-doo. God's jealousy is not like that. God knows, and we know, that he is the only one worthy of our worship. He is the one true God. He is what is best for us. And so when he sees his people walking a different direction, when he sees them going after things that are empty and meaningless, he goes, what are you doing? And so he sends discipline and judgment upon his people. First in the form of a plague, we see that end later. In verse 3 it just says that his anger was kindled towards them, but we see later the end of the plague and all and the 24,000 that it consumed. But he not only does that, but he commands Moses, you need to take all of the tribal leaders, all of the guys that were in charge that participated in this, you need to take them and hang them in a tree in the face of the sun. Then Moses goes on to tell the other leaders, if you have a guy that you know that participated in this, then you need to get rid of him as well. It's a harsh response. To root out sin. To end it. Remember, Israel was to be a beacon of obedience. They were to be a beacon to the rest of the world and to all the other nations that there was a true God, and their obedience was to point the light towards him as he blessed them as a nation. And so when they disobeyed, they were ruining that witness, and God would have none of it. So he sends this plague, he sends this judgment upon leadership and upon those that had fallen and bended the knee towards Baal. To root them out, to, to end that. In the midst of this story, we're given a specific glimpse into what happened. Phineas stands up in the midst of all of this. We understand there, in, starting in verse 6, we, we see another part of the story. The people are weeping. All of Israel has gathered together at the tabernacle, at the tent of meeting, and they are before the gate, and they are weeping. Why are they weeping? I think it's twofold. First, this generation, we saw it earlier with the bronze snake, this generation gets it. They understand the depth of their sin and how it separates them, and they are weeping in tears of repentance. This isn't uh, the strong-necked generation before them. This isn't their parents and their grandparents who would have immediately said, Moses, why are you doing all this? This group gets it, and they are weeping in repentance. I believe they're also weeping because of the consequences of sin. 24,000 people dead. And at this point, the plague had not stopped. We're told later that Phineas' action is what stops the plague. 24,000 people dead, and they are still dying leaders, many of whom probably had been respected among their communities, had made a mistake and now had been executed. Israel is weeping because of the sin and because of consequences of sin. And in the midst of all that, enters Zimri and Cosby, who I so badly want to call Cosby. Zimri and Cosby walk into the middle of this, and you can picture this with me. This kid is a son of a chief. His dad is in charge, and so he's like, man, I've got it all. And so he walks down Main Street of Israel with a midnight girl on his arm. He is thumbing his nose at God. He is thumbing his nose at Moses. He is thumbing his nose at the people who are there weeping over sin and its consequences. He is thumbing his nose at those consequences themselves. He's in essence saying, this doesn't apply to me. I can't be touched. You ever done that before? You ever been tempted? You ever sinned and thought, well, no one will ever find out? There won't be any serious consequences to this. There won't be anything wrong with this in the grand scheme of things. This guy flaunts it, man. He walks her right down Main Street of Israel. It says it's in the sight of all the people and in the sight of Moses, and he walks her right into her the family tent, the family home. He walks her right into the tent and they go right to the bedroom. And the people of Israel are like, "What in the world?" Can you imagine? Can you imagine? They have been weeping. They are shedding tears over this specific sin, and this guy just flaunts it right in front of them. And they don't, the majority of people don't know what to do. They're like, well, what just happened? And then Phineas comes along. Phineas takes a stand. Phineas is the grandson of Aaron, the high priest. He is the son of the current high priest, Eleazar. And Phineas sees this happen. Put yourself in his shoes. He is probably standing in the front of the people. He is one of the priests, probably making intercession on their behalf. He sees the brokenness that sin has brought to his people. He probably sees the he sees the plague that is destroying them. He sees the leaders who have been executed, some of whom may have been people that he knew. He, He may have even respected some of them. And he sees what sin has wrought, Oh, and the emotion just wells up inside of him. It says that he was filled with the jealousy, with the zeal of God. And he takes a stand he does something that I'm sure no one was expecting. In fact, this is one of those passages that you read, and you almost got to read it twice to make sure you read it right. Like, you're like, he did not just do that. He did not. But he grabs his spear, and he runs after this guy and this girl, and he barges into their tent, and he ends it. He ends it. And you're like, well, now What? Now what? Moses, can you imagine what Moses is thinking? God has to instruct Moses what to do later. He says, hey, the, Phineas was acting on my behalf. Phineas is the one that made it to him. So you know Moses has got to be watching this going, uh, now what? Now i got a guy that's, mur- now i got a priest that's murdered somebody. This is fantastic. Can you imagine one of our deacons? Like, I'm, I'm just picturing this. Like, one of our deacons runs out. Now what do I do? Deacons don't do that, by the way. And then God speaks to Moses. He tells him, this is what you're going to do. Verse 10, he says, And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace. He says, Don't you do anything with Phineas. Phineas was acting in my will. He was acting with my jealousy with my anger towards sin. I used him to stop the plague. I used him to root out sin among my people. It's an incredible story. It's a heartbreaking story. In many ways, the people of God seek out the pleasures of temporary satisfaction In light of the victories that God had won for them. And they get the consequences of it. To the point where Phineas must take drastic action. It's a heartbreaking story. But it tells us a lot about God. And it tells us a lot about ourselves. So I want us to see first three things that we see about God. First, we see about God, that sin is not tolerated. Sin's not tolerated. The people of Israel step away from the God, their Savior. They break They break so many of the commandments. They, they completely walk away from everything they've been given to chase after temporary pressures, to bow the knee to Baal to bow their knee to whatever idol maybe you're experiencing. They, they walk away from it. They bow the knee to something else. And we see that God does not tolerate it. He immediately takes action. I think sometimes we live in, we live in light of grace, and, and rightfully so, but I think we would be foolish to think that God now has changed everything and he tolerates sin. We would be foolish to think that would be foolish to think that. We live in an age of science where everything's explainable and where everything is an illness that we can understand. And I'm not saying that every time someone's sick that it's a direct result of sin. We know that's not true. We see that throughout. But I think we would be silly to say that's never the case. I think it would be silly for us to say it's never the case that our illness is because of sin. I think it would be silly for us to say this never, bad things never happen. They're never disciplined. God doesn't act that way. That's not the God of Scripture. God disciplines His children. In fact, we're told that if you're not being disciplined, then you're not a child. God doesn't tolerate sin. It should be in our hearts when we come across difficult times that we begin to explore our heart just the way David and Job and so many others did to say, Lord, what's here? What have I done? And sometimes God says nothing. Sometimes God says, this isn't about you. This is about what I'm doing through you. But sometimes he says, yeah, we got a problem. Our God does not tolerate sin. Second thing we see here, we're going to try to move. See, he holds leadership accountable. We see in our story that the leadership here of Israel, the ones that were supposed to be the chiefs, they were supposed to be the judges. What does he say? If they committed this sin, then you hang them before everyone. You make an example out of them. Matthew eighteen six says, "But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea." James three one. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. God holds leadership responsible. He holds us accountable. He holds me accountable for the things that I teach you. He holds me accountable for the life that I live before you. He holds me accountable for holding you accountable. Deacons, He has put you in a place of leadership. He has put you in a place of importance. How does your life reflect Him? When people of our church, when people outside these four walls look at you, what do they see you pursuing? What do they see as your passion? Sunday school teachers, BBS teachers, ministry leaders, He holds us accountable for the things we do, the lives that we live. Let us examine ourselves. We also see that he uses the obedient. Phineas here was obedient. He knew what the Lord was moving him to do, and he did it, apparently, with not a whole lot of hesitation. He does it. And I love what God does. He not only uses him in this moment, but he says, I'm going to continue to use you. You're going to have a priesthood that continues on. There will always be a priest from the line of Phineas serving in in my house. He he looks at Phineas and he points the people to Phineas and says, this is the kind of servant that I want. I want a servant who's going to obey and not think about why. (laughs) Just to do it. Not that we have no brains, but who just obeys. I want a servant who protects the people. I want a servant who thinks about them before himself. I want a servant who focuses on me and my heart. He uses the obedient. You want us to be a, you want to be used by God, you want to see your life matter for something, you want to see this church, be a, a church that God uses for the kingdom, then we must be obedient. It's not optional. It's not optional. We can't think, oh, but I I come on Sundays, I, I sing the right songs, I do the right things. But are you being obedient? We also see some things about ourselves. We see that we are vulnerable. 1 Timothy 2.22 says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Paul tells Timothy, flee sin. Flee it. Run from it. Don't stand around and wait. The thing that's interesting here is that Israel was on this high. Israel had just def- had so many victories. They were on the mountaintop of experiencing God's blessing upon them as a nation. And yet that was when the enemy attacked. And that's when it all went up in flames. So many times, it's this, after the spiritual highs, it's after the great victories of life that we are most vulnerable. Run from sin. Understand that you have an enemy that desires to consume. He lies, and he lies well. I stood at a funeral yesterday. A 19-year-old boy who loved Christ with all of his heart, with all that he is. Journals upon journals, pages upon pages of Scripture and his pouring over those. He lived it, and yet he believed a lie. He believed a lie in a moment. And the end was tragic. I still, I believe with all my heart, his heart was the Lord's, and he is with the Lord. But he believed a lie in a moment. Brothers and sisters, we can all fall temptation to that lie and to so many others. Let us flee from sin. Let us put on, as Paul says, the armor of God every day. Because we are vulnerable. Second, we are accountable. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin are death. There are clear consequences for the decisions that we make and our disobedience. We are accountable. And someday we will be accountable in the fullest. Can you imagine having your worst mistake recorded for all of history? Like I am bet my guess is that Salu Zimri's dad, would have rather people forgotten about his son's mistake. My guess is that Zimri would have rather people forgotten about this whole thing. Like, I'm guessing that they would have rather chapter 25 end at verse 13. Why? No, let's not record names here, God. Let's not make an example. And yet, brothers and sisters, there will come a day when we will stand before the Lord in all of judgment, and everything we've done in the dark will come to light. We will be held accountable. Here is the great thing. I told you that there was hope at the end of this story. So far it's not been so much hopeful. We are atonable. We are atonable. We can be purchased. We can be redeemed. We can be restored. Israel is not wiped off the face of this earth because one servant was obedient and he ended sin in the moment. And it's, God says that he made atonement for the people, that he didn't destroy anybody else. It took a death, but, it, but God purchased the ransom. So too, you and I, we make a whole host of mistakes even even for those of us that are believers we make a whole host of mistakes for those of you that have never put your faith and trust in God you're probably thinking man i have i've done so many things in my life you don't even know what i've done in the dark you i don't want that out there and and none of us do but you're thinking nothing can redeem me and yet God has shown that we are all atonable because Christ, the great servant of God, God Himself, became sin. Became sin on your behalf and on my behalf that He may make a payment on the cross that He may atone us all. There is great hope. Yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we walk away from the God of all creation. And yet, He has made a way. I want to read you the end of this song. I was tempted to read the whole song, but I just want—I want you to hear these words. God of salvation, you chased down my heart through all of my failure and pride on a hill you created. The light of the world. Abandoned in darkness to die. And as you speak, a hundred billion failures disappear. Where you lost your life, so I could find it there. If you left the grave behind, so will I. I can see your heart and everything you've done Every part designed in a work of art called love. If you gladly chose to surrender, so will I. I can see your heart eight billion different ways. Every precious one, a child you died to save. If you gave your life to love them, so will I. Like you would again a hundred billion times. But what measure could amount to your desire, you're the one who never leaves one behind. Brothers and sisters, we have made many mistakes. We have sinned beyond all comprehension. We have walked away from the God who loves. And yet he extends his hand of grace. He desires that no one be left behind this morning this morning will you will you seek him will you be like the people of israel will you search your heart and say lord lord what do you see when you look at me will you allow him to point out the sin that is keeping you from running the race well? Will you allow Him to expose some things that you have not dealt with? Will you come and ask for grace and, rep- and repentance? Saying, I no longer want to live that way, I want to change. Will you respond this morning? Believer, will you respond this morning? Friend who has never put their faith and trust in Christ... There are consequences for sin. God will deal with it. But this morning you have an opportunity for grace. You have an opportunity for freedom and atonement that you may never get again. Will you take it today? I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. We're just going to have a time.